started, so it's my great pleasure to introduce Zoltan Molnar. In typical Oxford fashion, uh, we hadn't spent a lot of time together until we were both at the same conference in Berlin. Um, and we, we had a very enjoyable uh, developmental neurobiology conference there. Just to introduce Zoltan for those that don't know him, he's Professor of Developmental Neuroscience. He's based down in Deepak. I think you actually get to be head of one of your I'm on sabbatical. Yeah, okay, you're on sabbatical at the moment. And, and Zoltan did his undergraduate medical degree in Hungary, and then came to Oxford, did his DPhil with Connor Blakemore, uh, and then has spent uh, really focused on cortical development since that time. And uh, I know that he delivers a great talk, because I very much enjoyed the talk he gave when we were in Berlin together. And it's, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to come speak to us today, Zoltan. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here today, and I thought that perhaps I shall spend the first three minutes explaining why it is so important for us to stick together, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so my laboratory is here, which is one of the oldest buildings in the science area, at the end of the Pitt Rivers Museum. So uh, this was the laboratory of Le Gros-Clark, and he, he worked on the thalamus, and we are, at least we are very close to the biochemistry, and it's a really nice cafeteria. Um, so the reason why we should stick together because uh, we are, it, times are getting tougher. As you know, the healthcare spending is growing much faster than the gross domestic <coughs> product or the wages uh, all over the world. So it's very important how we spend the money uh, on research and also on healthcare. And if you have a look at the, these curves, uh, this is not looking good, especially for the, uh, for the elderly because most of the money is, and, and in some countries it's getting out of hand, uh, how much money uh, uh, they spend on, on these ages. Of course, it's, it's justifiable because there are some devastating diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, they get huge media attention uh, now and quite uh, rightly. And uh, also there is interest from the very political and economic uh, leadership. Uh, and. Um, and these are indeed devastating diseases. But let's be honest, to be able to restore this brain into this condition, mm -hmm. the chances are, are very little. So in fact, uh, the prevention is uh, getting more and more important. As you all know, uh, by the time you diagnose an Alzheimer's disease, uh, uh, the capacity is quite limited. And you can diagnose it much earlier, and then uh, you have more chances of intervening. So basically, uh, the interest is shifting to younger and younger ages. And we can also diagnose these diseases with uh, uh, more and more sensitive uh, tools. Of course, I'm not an expert. I just downloaded this from the internet. <laughs> because I thought that I come to a hospital, so I should really <laughs> so, so, but I find it very interesting that, you know, maybe in a few years we will realize that many of these neurodegenerative diseases actually uh, the interest is much earlier to development. Uh, and also, now there's more and more emphasis on prevention of these uh, degenerative diseases. You can build up your cognitive reserve with diet, with exercise, uh, uh, and uh, more mental activities, and also I started to take some of these more conventional <laughs> uh, 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 nutritive supplements. But, so the idea is that you have to invest at these ages 
to prevent the cost uh, at later stages. So that was my take on message. And now for the next two minutes, I just have a look at the budget, how the current research budget is distributed. I borrowed this slide from the MRC. Uh, you just uh, had Hugh Perry here, so you probably know some of it. So uh, we are quite fortunate because the Medical Research Council is a very strong uh, funding body. Uh, but let's just put things into perspective. The annual budget of MRC is the 10 minutes expenditure of the U.S. military. So basically that's the money we spend on, um, on, on research. And from this 100%, 17% is the money for which we can apply when you submit your grants. And from this 17%, you can see that development of neurobiology is less than 7%. Whereas uh, neurodegenerative diseases, they increase. So it's extremely important that we link up with clinical departments and we apply together for these sources. Otherwise, we have no chance. And we should also um, infiltrate MRC because if you look at the board, the current board members, um, uh, uh, neurodegenerative diseases are represented in much higher number. I have nothing against neurodegenerative diseases, but, but I, I'm saying that it should be emphasized that neurodevelopment has also had its very important role. And you can uh, justify building similar platforms, which, uh, for instance, the neurodegenerative uh, consortiums uh, put together, and they are very successful. So I think what our, the, our long-term goal should be to have a similar platform for neurodevelopment uh, and tackle some of these questions. And the sooner we do it, the better, because if you look at these, the, once uh, a commitment is made for these uh, research areas, then you have a very long time uh, till you have to follow these up. So I think the sooner we do it, the better. And we can justify this by looking at the, these figures. If you look at the disability-adjusted life year ranks among these diseases, you can see that uh, preterm birth complications and neonatal encephalopathy, they're very high. And they didn't go down much over the last 10 years. They are still very high on these lists. So um, uh, that would justify more uh, uh, input into these areas. And also, if you look at uh, neonatal epilepsy or neonatal stroke, they are almost as common uh, in the neonates that in the in the later stages of life. So this period is particularly interesting. And we cannot just look at the young brain as a smaller version of the adult. It's not the same structure. The rules are different. And in the next uh, few minutes, I would like to go through uh, some of the basic biological mechanisms which might be related to some of these cognitive disorders. And uh, these numbers justify that we have to elevate the platform from which we can tackle these diseases more. And it's, uh, it's now, it's perhaps it's beginning to be understood that many of these conditions have developmental origin and they get uh, more attention. And initially it wasn't recognized because uh, the disease mechanism starts decades before the manifestation. So that's why uh, there was uh, this delay in this realization. And, uh, Especially, it's very important that we always uh, link the research uh, uh, to human conditions. Uh, I mostly work on rodents, but I always look at the human literature, and we should do 
more of this. Uh, if you look at, uh, because the kinetics of the development of the primate brain is very uh, different uh, from a, a rodent, and, and even between a chimp and a human, uh, although there are great similarities, even the gene networks are very similar. There are very few differences in the uh, gene activation networks uh, during development. But the big difference is uh, the timing. A chimp brain is completely finished uh, its growth uh, very early on, whereas we keep going, and the peak of the thickness of, of certain cortical areas is actually reaching around 10 years of age. So until then, you have increased in the cortical uh, thickness. And then, after that, we all decline. Uh, <laughs> and if, if I show you this movie, which you probably know from these uh, landmark publications, you can see in 15 seconds, 15 years of, a, of a brain um, development, or, or uh, uh, you can see that between the ages of 4 and 21, uh, initially you have an increase in thickness, but then you have a gradual decline in thickness of the, of the cerebral cortex. And uh, from the kinetics, you can predict some of these cognitive disorders much earlier than you could uh, do. Uh, just from the symptoms. So uh, this is also pushing uh, back the areas much earlier. So you can see that uh, uh, these schizophrenic brains have a very different kinetics in, in, in these rearrangements of the thickness of the cortex. So the message is that the, the young developing brain is very different from an adult brain, and the rules uh, uh, um, which we use to manipulate uh, uh, perinatal conditions uh, might be very different um, uh, what we have to use for an adult and also uh, perhaps some of the, the therapies we use today maybe they are not the most effective the most efficient ways of, of treating these conditions so I shall go through some of these basic developmental uh, uh, steps uh, in the uh, cerebral cortex in these early embryonic and um, late embryonic and early postnatal stages and I shall show you four examples where a basic neuroscience laboratory contributed to the understanding of neurogenesis, neuronal migration, <coughs> and to a, a transient um, uh, cell group, the subplate neurons, and also perhaps how to understand the uh, hypoxic ischemic conditions. So let's start with neurogenesis. Um, I wonder whether this slide can be switched on, this one. That's the case. Uh, so basically, if you have a cross section through the uh, uh, cerebral, uh, if you have a cross section through the cerebral cortex, uh, you have two zones: the ventricular zone and the uh, PL surface here. And we are now looking at this ventricular zone here, stained for dividing cells. And you can see that most of these cells they descend to the ventricular zone when they divide. And, uh, and then they move up to the uh, preplate, uh, where they form the first uh, postmitotic cell layer. If you stain these brains with a postphoistone H3 antibody, this will reveal the sites of division. So these uh, antigens are only expressed in dividing cells. You can see that most of the divisions occur here in the ventricular zone, and you also have the subventricular zone here, where you also have divisions, but then there are very few uh, divisions within the uh, cortical plate itself. So most of the brain is generated in these zones. In all mammals, 
and uh, then they migrate out. So in a primate, you would have a much thicker ventricular zone and subventricular zone, and then these, and you have a variety of intermediate progenitors which amplify the output. And then the first postmitotic cell layer is the herein subplate. This is the transient zone I have been talking about, uh, and this can be quite big in in uh, uh, human, and they are only present during. Uh, embryonic and early postnatal life, then they disappear. Um, and we come back to these cells in a minute. And then the rest of the cortex will be uh, will bypass these and they will form in an inside first, outside last uh, fashion. So uh, I've been studying subplate cells for a long time now and I believe that uh, we have to understand these cell groups because they are the scaffolds of the developing brain. And without this scaffold you can't build a functional brain and, um, and these cells are more susceptible for damage. And if they disappear too early, uh, that, that can be a problem for the subsequent development of the brain. And uh, if you look at the macaque and the mouse brain, you can see that the uh, subcortical plate is much bigger in a macaque. You have subcompartments in it. And, uh, and uh, in the adult, if you have a look uh, where would subplate be, you only have a few scattered cells in the uh, white matter, the in interstitial white matter cells. And in some cognitive conditions like schizophrenia, you have more of these cells uh, left behind in, in certain areas of the brain. And uh, these cells, if you birthdate them when they are born, this was done in ferret a long time ago, uh, then you see that they are very numerous. But if you look at the uh, a few weeks later, they disappeared. Whereas if you inject, uh, if you label some of these um, uh, layer six cells, the same method, I think they used thymidine in these, those days, then you see that these cells will survive. So there's a preferential cell death. So these scaffold cells of the subplate, they get uh, eliminated from, from the brain very early on. And in the adult, you don't even see them. And the different uh, cortical layers, then will uh, dominate, and they have different proportions in different cortical areas, like a sensory area you have more layer 4 and less layer 5, whereas in the motor area you have more layer 5 and less layer 4. So these proportions will be very, very important for the uh, uh, subsequent functions of the brain, and these cytoarchitectonic differences, they reflect uh, differences in the circuitry of that particular uh, cortical area. So you cannot just produce cells in a haphazard way. You have to produce them in an organized fashion, otherwise you don't get these functions represented. So I shall be talking a little bit about uh, inflammation during uh, uh, cortical neurogenesis. And remember this slide that you know if you alter some of these uh, uh, proportions, that this can have an effect on the uh, functional circuits. So let's have a look at neurogenesis then. And I shall be talking mostly about a finding we had in this population, in these intermediate progenitor cells. They were only discovered relatively recently by these three groups independently, and they noticed that these intermediate progenitors in the subventricular zone, they were producing neurons. And they are quite important for regenerative medicine because they are fate-restricted, and if you contemplate cell replacement therapy, they are in the best position to, uh, to apply uh, these. So um, we became interested in looking at these intermediate progenitors because also they have evolutionary relevance. Uh, if you want to produce a bigger brain, 
you have to have uh, more uh, uh, progenitors. Now these progenitors lie in this zone of the uh, cerebral cortex and this is expressing a transcription factor called TBR2. The ventricular zone is expressing some other master genes like BAC6. Now if you don't have a functional uh, TBR2 uh, in the brain, in human, then you have a polymicrogyria syndrome, no callosum, and also the circumference of the head will be two standard deviations below the average, so it's also microcephaly. And so we looked at this gene, the TBR2, because these uh, uh, intermediate progenitors, they express TBR2. And that zone, the subventricular zone, is quite interesting because you have a quite dense vasculature here. So most of the divisions are here in the ventricular zone, but the intermediate progenitors divide here. And if you zoom into that area, you can see a quite close association between these TBR2-positive intermediate progenitors and uh, the vasculature. So we had a closer look at the distributions of these intermediate progenitors, and they were always closer to the blood vessels than chance would have uh, suggested. So there is a vascular niche for the division of these TBI2-positive cells, and sometimes they even uh, wrap themselves around uh, the vasculature. So obviously, this will have a, a big uh, impact on how they divide. So that's uh, an area which is, is, is quite interesting. Now, if you knock out TBI2 uh, from uh, brains, uh, Liz Robertson has been looking at this um, uh, gene because it's also involved in implantation of the embryo. But we were looking at later stages of brain development and you can see that indeed there is a modest reduction of the cerebral cortex and uh, there is no TBR2 expression of course. And if you then study the uh, divisions away from the ventricular zone in the subventricular zone, there is a reduction uh, in the knockout. The ventricular zone gene expression is not um, altered, but the subventricular zone gene expression is drastically reduced in these, in these brains, suggesting uh, that you have less divisions uh, and less outputs from the germinal zone. And indeed, if you look at an initial stained section and you start counting uh, cells, like Amanda did, then you can see that there's a, a reduction in the thickness of the cortex, and both supragranular and infragranular cells were also affected. So there's a reduction in the cell number. The glial cells were not affected uh, in the TBR2 uh, condition. <coughs> so that would suggest that these TBR2 positive intermediate progenitors, they contribute to both lower and upper layers of the cortex. And at that the time, this was completely against the dogma. Uh, uh, the so-called upper layer hypothesis was dominating the field, and um, uh, but our result did not really fit this because if you have if you had a reduction in the intermediate progenitors, we could see a reduction in both uh, lower and upper layers. And so, why who established this dogma? Actually, it was a good friend of mine, Victor Tarabikin, who is in the Charité in Berlin, and he made these suggestions because the gene expression in the subventricular zone. Um, some of these genes were discovered by Victor. They were always in the, associated to the upper layers. So he, um, without lineage tracing, he suggested that these intermediate progenitors actually produce upper layers, but not lower layers. So we went after this uh, idea, and the most straightforward way of checking whether these intermediate progenitors generate upper and lower layers is when you cross uh, TBR2 
free mouse with a reporter line uh, where the reporter gene is top proxed. And then you have a look at the distribution of the, of the, of the dye. And you can see that uh, the cerebral cortex was red all the way. And if you stain it for all sorts of uh, markers, you can see that a large proportion of the cells went through the TBI2 free intermediate progenitors. In fact, the upper layers have a slightly larger percentage, and the lower is a bit lower, but it's still quite considerable. So based on this, and based on the knockout results, we suggested that all layers are generated through these intermediate progenitors. And that would also explain the reduction in the knockout completely. But this is still not image tracing. You are just looking at the mass output from the TBI2 uh, progenitor. So let me introduce you to a technique which we developed recently uh, uh, in the laboratory. And all the credit should go to Fernando Garcia Moreno, who is a uh, human frontier science program fellow in my laboratory, who, who was inspired by the rainbow mouse, as you probably all heard of. And what uh, Fernando wanted to do is, so in the rainbow you have a random coloring of different cells. But what you want to do is to color one progenitor in a unique color, and then all the descendants should have the same color. So then you just scan in these cells, and based on that unique uh, spectrum, then you can actually uh, identify who was the father of that cell. Like, um, my name is, is Molnar, and if you go to Hungary, and you say, oh, I'm looking for Zoltan Molnar, you have 150 <laughs> or more. But uh, the, the Spanish, they are much smarter because they put several names. So Garcia Moreno, Guante, Duarte, so they have sometimes five, six names. <laughs> and then the, uh, the safety is much better. So that's exactly what we wanted to do, to have lots of arrested fluorophores, which uh, you can activate with a Cree expression under the uh, promoter of your choice. So for instance, you can target this to an EMX territory or DLX or other segments of the neuroepithelium. And then you fix this into the genome of that uh, progenitor with the transposase. So after that, it will not dilute. All the cells will have this uh, uh, unique permanent uh, barcode uh, in them, and then you can study this. So, so that's what Fernando did. And uh, to increase the safety, he also targeted the cytoplasm, or nucleus, or the membrane uh, with these uh, fluorescent probes. And when you knock these in, then you can actually distinguish the, the clones. Because you can have a cell with a, a yellow cytoplasm and also red nucleus, for instance. And then they, you know that they, they came from the same progenitor. Obviously, some of these we, with the eye, we can't even distinguish, so you have to do it with confocal and then uh, use the, the spectrum. So uh, you can, because it's of the transposase, you can also look at the late generated glia populations. So you can see the astrocytes are even stronger uh, in the labeling, so you can have a look at the glia image as well. So he was very happy with this technique, and it was Navneet Vashishta in the lab who started using this method to understand the output of these intermediate progenitors I have been talking to you about, these TBR2-positive progenitors. And um, if you use this method, then you can see all the descendants. They were in the upper lower layer. 
And then we could look at now the clonal distribution, the distance between the related cells. Also, we could look at the clone size of these cells. And uh, now we can st uh, start to understand and model how many times these progenitors divide, how many cells they produce, uh, where do they distribute. And it was interesting to see that once you go through these TBR2 progenitors, uh, they can end up in different layers. So this is confirming the previous suggestions. Uh, and also, uh, they like to stick together. They don't go uh, further out. So these particular progenitors, all the descendant cells, they are in a columnar fashion. And uh, they divide more than two times. So they double, quadruple, and uh, increase the, the output even more. And this would fit extremely well with some very early studies of Sung Sengton at Melbourne University, who demonstrated that uh, uh, in vaccine activation, and you know that you have the descendant cells uh, sticking together, and uh, they form these columns. There is one single layer which is an exception, and that's the subplate cells here. And I shall come back to this now. So uh, I think even now you can find extremely new uh, findings in neurogenesis. So I just wanted to illustrate that the techniques are becoming better, and and for instance the the clone method uh, helped us to understand the. Uh, uh, the production of the neurons through the intermediate progenitors. Uh, let's move to neuronal migration, and I want to show you a brand new pathway of neuronal migration, which uh, uh, we discovered together with uh, Juan de Carlos from the Cajal Institute in Madrid. So, as I, I mentioned, the only layer where you don't have this uh, uh, pattern is the subplate layer which is by this stage is very thin layer of, of cells here. And, uh, but in the uh, embryonic brain, it's uh, much bigger. So until now, it was understood that most of the cortical cells, they come from this ventricular zone here, and they migrate radially. And most of the excitatory cells would come like this. The gobergic interneurons, they come from the medial and the caudal ganglionic eminence, and they migrate tangentially to the brain. If you electroporate the GFB-expressing vector into these uh, progenitors, you can see that they start migrating out. And some of them will even form projections uh, going towards the thalamus. So these are the earliest projections out from the cortex. However, if you electroporate to this part of the brain, initially we used it as a control. We didn't expect anything coming out from there which is called the rostral medial telencephalic wall. So if you electroporate uh, some tracer here, or uh, inject a tracer, you can see that some of these cells will migrate to, out to the cortex, and many of them are in the subplate, in this transient zone of cells uh, in the subplate, and you can uh, stain them with uh, some markers, and you can see that um, they are indeed expressing this. So we were really very surprised to see this. Finding. We had a mouse where subplate cells uh, were expressing a, a reporter gene, uh, the EDG2 um, EGFP mouse. Now they call it also LPAR1 EGFP, lysophosphatidyl acid receptor 1, but, but we just use it just for the, uh, because the subplate cells come uh, green here. And if you inject a tracer to the rostral medial telencephalic wall here, then you get double labeled cells. So, Basically, 
we propose that a large proportion of the subplate neurons, they come from this uh, source, which is in the middle of the anterior part of the brain, and they um, uh, migrate tangentially. So this is, this is a new source of subplate neurons uh, to the cerebral cortex. So it's not only the caudal ganglionic eminence, but also from here. Just imagine if you have a disease which is affecting the migration of these cells, it will have a huge impact on the uh, circuits formed through these transient uh, uh, scaffolds. So um, uh, this is quite an interesting area now to study uh, these cells. Obviously, we want to use the clone method to understand the clonal relationship uh, from that. But it's very difficult to do these experiments because embryonic 10, 9, this is the time when most of the cells are generated. So it's very surgery, intrauterine surgery is very difficult at those uh, stages. These cells could come from neuron cracks. Well. Very interesting. Yeah. In fact, all these are uncharted territories. Um, now, inflammation. So, so far I um, told you <coughs> that neurons are generated in various sectors of the neuroepithelium, and then they have to produce these. In, in certain proportions. And if you have alteration in the production of these neurons, it can have devastating effects. Even subtle alterations in the uh, number of cells can have devastating effect. It's better not to have a cerebral cortex than to have a cerebral cortex with altered cells. I shall show you an example where a mouse has no cerebral cortex. And I can show you another uh, alteration when you alter the layer four or five proportions that animal will not be able to grasp palate, will not be able to perform other tasks. So, uh, so such subtle alterations can ha happen if, if there is a maternal inflammation. It's not the agent itself which is causing the problem, and it was Helen Stolp, uh, who was um, uh, from Melbourne in my laboratory for a few years now. He's a David Edwards group at uh, uh, King's College London. And uh, what Helen wanted to study is what is the effect of the maternal interleukin on the uh, generation of neurons. And as you know, the maternal and the fetal circulation is separate. There are barrier systems, but the interleukins, they do cross through this uh, region. And Helen is a, is an ex was an expert in this, and also she was an expert in these, these barriers, especially in this one where most of the neurons are, are generated. So what Helen did was uh, she injected uh, LPS, lipophosphosaccharide, into the uh, mom, and then at the peak of neurogenesis. So many of these layers are generated in sequence, and uh, she was targeting the lower uh, layers of the, of the cerebral cortex. And um, then uh, she looked at the changes in the germinal zone, and uh, looked at the output from the germinal zone. So within eight hours, you can see quite uh, <coughs> severe changes, uh, obviously depending on the dose of the LPS. Uh, and LPS is not going into the fetal circulation. It's the interleukin, which is uh, produced by the mother, which will have this effect. And when she looked at the neurogenesis, then there was a drastic reduction in the um, uh, phosphohistone H3 uh, positive profiles in the ventricular zone uh, after the LPS treatment, even after eight hours, and uh, it took longer than 24 hours to recover. 
and she also looked at BRDU uh, uh, incorporation, and she also looked at the proportions of different cells. So if you just stain it with new N, it's a neuronal marker, sorry about this figure, it's slightly better in the original, but then uh, you can see that uh, there's not much difference in the layering or proportions of these cells. But if you go in with specific markers for a subtype of layer 5 and the subtype of layer 4, you will see the increase in some of these cells uh, just after a single dose of lipopolysaccharide. So this uh, machinery, which is producing these cells, is quite vulnerable. And these progenitors respond uh, to these uh, signals. They uh, many of these uh, progenitors ex express um, some of these tau-like receptors, for instance, and then it can have an effect on the proportions of the cells. And we only begin to understand these changes in proportion because now we have better markers for these um, uh, cells. I want to talk a little bit about the subplate neurons because uh, these neurons have a great importance in the development of, of early uh, connectivity and also later uh, connectivity. So I became interested in these cells very early on because they, they are the first ones starting to grow towards the thalamus. They meet with the thalamic counterparts in the uh, internal capsule. The subcerebral tracts they develop slightly later. And then the thalamic projections cross the paleo subpaleo boundary by associating to these early scaffold projections from subplate. And then um, uh, the subcerebrals will go to the cerebral pedunco, and then the early co uh, cortical thalamics will reach the thalamus, and then they leave the, uh, the brainstem. So, for this kind of development, you need uh, early subplate projections. Without this, uh, the thalamic projections will never make it to the cortex. And there are several mutants where this is not happening. I just show you one example, which was um, uh, this cell polarity. Uh, gene which was knocked out from this zone and they could not reach the thalamus and the thalamic projections were lost also in the ventral pallium. So these mutants, they don't have any input or output from the cortex. They have a servo-isolate, a genetically manufactured servo-isolate. And of course they don't develop barrel fields because you don't have interaction with the sensory periphery. Uh, you still develop a normal um, cortex, but it has no connections with the outside world. And have a look at this. They have a very little um, change in behavior. So this is a normal control. You will see that the mutant is, is, is has slightly different background. They still walk around. Um, they even respond to light stimulus, so they don't walk uh, to the edges of the uh, table, for instance. They can um, walk on a uh, grid. Of course, they are not as good at it. There is a little bit of ataxia, but you can do all this without the cerebral cortex. So basically, the the thalamic projections don't get in. I, I guess Russell would be very interested in looking at the EEG and sleep <laughs> of these animals because then you don't have any interaction between the and, uh, the subcortical structures and the cortex. So it would be interesting to see what and they can you can they can also swim. So. My message is that these subplate projections are very uh, uh, important at the early uh, guidance of the thalamic projections, but it's not stopping <coughs> there. The subplate cells are the first ones which uh, will be targeted by the thalamocortical projections. 
And uh, even before the thalamic projections would enter the cerebral cortex, they have an input through the subplate, and they start maturing these circuits within the cortical plate. There is a period, early postnatal period, in the rodent, it's the first postnatal week, when the, the system will coexist with the transient subplate cells, and then later postnatal life, the subplate cells disappear, and they no longer engage in these interactions, and then you have the final definitive uh, 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 projections to these cells. Some subplate cells survive, even in rodent, and they form the layer 6B. And these cells are very interesting uh, uh, because they have unique characteristics. For instance, they are the only ones respond to orexin in, in, in the cerebral cortex. But what my point is now is that without this transient circuit, you are not able to build these. So if these cells are damaged early on, then you will not be able to finish the construction of the cortex. Let me show you the integration of these um, uh, subplate neurites into the overlying cortex. You can see that there is an uh, area-specific integration and stage-specific integration. If you change the sensory flow by shaving off one row of whiskers, you can see that you also adjust the neurites of these transient cells. They stay here rather than uh, get removed. So uh, their cell death might be regulated with the peripheral activity. There are all sorts of rearrangements in the new rights of these cells in, during the first postnatal week, and uh, uh, they retract their epical dendrites, and uh, many of them will die. The key experiment was to ablate uh, subplate cells uh, with these um, uh, toxins, which were selective for subplate cells. The low affinity NGF receptor is only expressed in these subplate cells, so you can. Uh, 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 delete them from the cortex, and then you don't get a normal area specific patterning of the thalamic input, uh, as you can see here in the Vara field. So uh, that's a very interesting system where the thalamic projections don't develop properly because the subplate cells are not here. And as if you are a pediatrician, you know that the white matter and the lower part of the cortical plate is the most sensitive area of the cerebral cortex after birth. So these cells uh, are very susceptible for, um, for damage. And that is a problem, because then you can't finish the construction of the brain. As you probably know, the arch at St. Louis was built by using a transient scaffold, which was in between the two arches. And then as they progressed, they moved this arch in a dynamic fashion all the way to the top, and then they lifted the last piece here, and then they removed this dynamic scaffold. So when I talk about subplate, I would like you to remember this scaffold, because we are talking about the dynamic transient scaffold, which is essential for the building. Just imagine if you remove this scaffold when it's halfway through. You can't finish the building. And that's exactly what's happening if you have a subplate cell death. So at these uh, early interactions, subplate is very vulnerable. And this is when most of the <coughs> connections uh, get established. And also in perinatal uh, stages, uh, birth is a huge risk. We take everything for granted. But you know, lots of things can happen at that point. And subplate is susceptible for damage. And it was uh, uh, Kostovich, Wolpe, uh, Mary Rutherford, 
uh, and others who, who made a huge contribution, Donna Ferrero, who made a huge contribution to understanding of the subplate damage. And now it's well understood that if you have uh, damage in this zone, then you can't finish cell migration, can't complete the uh, development of the projections. So that's why subplate is an interesting cell group, and that's why we study them uh, quite a bit. And we just finished a very long study, transcriptomic analysis of these cell groups um, in mouse. Uh, so the idea was very simple. We dissected this subplate zone at different developmental stages, and we looked at the transcriptome. And if you team up with uh, bioinformaticians, then they can tell you all sorts of things you would have never imagined, like you know all the gene networks. Uh, but when you look at what genes uh, are linked together, then you get some of these networks identified uh, from these cell groups. And what is interesting, if you plot with the pink. Uh, some of the um, schizophrenia susceptibility genes, then they assemble into these networks associated to subplate, even if this transcriptome was from mouse. Now we are doing exactly the same experiment in human and uh, chimpanzee with the Allen Brain Institute uh, in collaboration. And let me show you just one slide from David Edwards' group, which is um, really interesting. So David is, of course, uh, outstanding pediatrician and he's interested in hypoxic uh, uh, brain damage and he has been looking at um, uh, a huge genetic screen uh, looking at newborns with a good and not so good outcome from from hypoxic ischemia and he was identifying similar networks from this human data and what was interesting is that our networks in the subplate and his networks in the human overlap and there was one uh, uh, gene, Serpini1, which was in the center of, of these networks in both of our networks. So what is this Serpini1? It's producing neuroserpin. This is the human expression in a 15 uh, weeks old human um, uh, cortex. Uh, neuroserpin is expressed in the subplate, but also you have some here. Um, and it's also expressed in macaque. Uh, we recently finished this study with the Allen Brain Institute when we did a similar uh, a transcriptomic analysis in different parts of the developing brain in the germinal zone and also in the subplate, so this will be published soon. And uh, just subplate, we divided it into five different layers because you have these subcompartmentalizations, especially in the visual uh, cortex, and the neuroserpin is expressed in subplate specifically. And now I talk to you a little bit about the uh, possible link between hypoxia and subplate and neurosurgery. So um, I had a very talented uh, visiting scientist, Shinichi Kondo, from uh, Riken from Japan in my laboratory, and he has been working on ER stress in in the uh, in the blood. And when he came to my lab, uh, I gave him a very simple project to look at. Um, uh, some gene expression in the subplate cells. And he came back a couple of weeks later and he said that, in my opinion, uh, subplate cells have ER stress. So he stained it for ER stress markers, and indeed uh, there was a transient expression of these markers. He also showed that there is a huge rough endoplasmic reticulum in these cells compared to other cells in the uh, brain at, at stages. And he also demonstrated that, for instance, neuroserpin is transiently expressed in subplate, uh, 
at the late um, postnatal, the uh, first postnatal week, but then not in the adult. Some layer 5 cells express it throughout life. So then we started to take it a bit more seriously, uh, neuroserpin, and we now we are looking at the neuroserpin expression in various uh, hypoxic ischemic models in the mouse, rat, and also in human. And uh, what is interesting is that in these hypoxic ischemic conditions, neuroserpin is shooting up in the subplate, but not in layer 5, so they produce more neuroserpin. So we are currently looking at the neuroserpin knockout, how they respond to hypoxic ischemia and how subplate is damaged in this. And this is fitting in extremely well with David Edwards' observation of the susceptibility to hypoxia and also to our um, transcriptomic analysis in subplate. So, so what is this neuroserpin? So it's a serine protease inhibitor enzyme, and it's in the right place to interact with the plasminogen activator and related proteins, and serpin one is the gene. So that's what I was mentioning, that neuroserpin is in the right place to do something about uh, developmental, stroke, uh, developmental stroke. I'm almost finished. And, and, uh, and what will be also interesting to see is whether uh, neuroserpin has something to do with plasticity, perhaps, and not just cell death. So we are administering uh, neuroserpin in excess, and we are looking at uh, plasticity in the brain uh, as well, especially in the somatosensory cortex. So I hope I gave you a flavor about some of the, the uh, interactions which are only present in the developing brain. They are not present in the adult, and uh, the development of the brain depends on these uh, transient interactions. So without understanding these, we can't really interfere uh, with the developing brain. And uh, some of these studies uh, contributed to this, but of course it's a long way for translation, so it's very important that we stick together, especially neuropathology um, and uh, pediatricians, so I think we should meet more, and um, uh, that's why I'm so grateful that you invited me. I would like to uh, go through what I told you today. I, I hope I convinced you that the intermediate progenitors, these are special type of progenitors which generate uh, both upper and lower layer cells in the brain, and they have a unique affinity to vasculature, which we don't know why. I also showed you a new uh, source of neurons, the rostrum medial which has not been implicated in the as source of subplate neurons, the earliest generated cells. And I also showed you some of these networks which were pulled out from transcriptomic analysis of these transient cells, and also from human uh, susceptibility studies. And I would like to um, argue for neuroserpin that perhaps it will have some uh, kind of a uh, translational aspects which we can have a look at, look together. So all this work was done by uh, several people. So this is the Halloween party, um, and uh, so the neurogenesis was done mostly by Fernando Navnit and Helen. The neuronal migration Anna Waitzi and Francisca and also they were involved in the subplate neuron projects as well, and the hypoxia was done by uh, Chika, Shinichi, Waitsi, and, uh, and Jennifer Miller, who is, who is now pushing the, the neuroserpin uh, project. So thanks so much for your attention.